Good morning. It's good to be together today. I, I want to start with uh, just a, a quick story I'll never forget when I first discovered that redemption was a really sweet thing. We had just moved. I was in the fifth grade. My father was in the service. So we moved a lot. We had just moved to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And it did not take me long to discover that in Michigan... Aluminum cans were redeemable for 15 cents a pop. And friends, I have to tell you, when you're a fifth grader and all you have to do is gather four or five cans, go to the local convenience store, and you can get a soda or a candy bar whenever you want, that, my friends, is a good message that redemption is good. And so I knew right away, early in life, that to redeem something was a good, sweet thing. Today we're talking about redemption. That's what we're going to hone in on today. About redemption that goes much farther and deeper than aluminum cans. Today we're talking about what it means to be a people whose primary identity in this world is that we have been redeemed. Today we're talking about what it looks like to live a life of redemption. To live the redeemed life. And The word redeem actually means this, to set free by paying a price or to make right again through sacrifice, through some sacrifice made to make things the way they're supposed to be. And as we jump in today, I want to start off by talking quickly about this whole uh, guardian or kinsman redeemer thing. And we've been going through the book of Ruth, where in our fourth, fourth week of Ruth, loss, Love and legacy, I got that right order. Um, and uh, this week, we've kind of, the, through the story, has this whole concept of a kinsman redeemer. But this week, that concept really comes to the forefront. I just want to talk about it for just a minute. The word kinsman redeemer in our story is the Hebrew word ga'al, and it is a word that means this. A person who plays the part of a kinsman or relative that redeems. A redeeming kinsman or relative, a redeeming person or force in someone's life as a ga'al. And in the Old Testament, friends, um, if a family member found themselves in trouble or danger, it was the responsibility of their nearest relative or kinsman to redeem them. And you would be called to kind of fulfill this role and be a redeemer in a number of areas. I'm going to give you four Um, responsibilities associated with a kinsman redeemer. Two of them apply to our story. Two are just extra and free of charge this morning. First of all, kinsman redeemers were responsible to redeem from blood. This is where like the Bible and like the stories of the wild, wild west come together in a beautiful way. If a family member was killed, it was the responsibility of their brother or the next of kin to avenge their death. Like someone killed someone from your family and now it's on you to go hunt them down and avenge the situation and make it right. That was the first um, responsibility of a kinsman redeemer. Second, it was the responsibility of a kinsman redeemer to redeem from bondage. If you were the nearest of kin to a family member who found themselves enslaved because of financial debt or some other reason, you would seek out Uh, Seek them out, and then you would redeem them. You would set them free by paying the price, by canceling their debt, by sacrificing your own resources so that they could be set free again. Third, a kinsman redeemer was responsible to redeem land. Land in the ancient world was a very big deal, and land was passed down from generation to generation. 
And if a family member was forced to sell their land because of debt or poverty or some other circumstance, a kinsman redeemer would buy the land back in order to keep it in the family. So the next of kin would be responsible to go and retrieve that land at whatever the cost. And then finally, a kinsman redeemer was responsible to redeem the dead. And this is the kind of where it gets a little strange for us in our world. But in the ancient world, if a, if a man died and left a widow with no sons to take care of her, it was the responsibility of that man's brother or the next of kin to marry that woman. And this would not only ensure that she would be taken care of, but it would also provide the opportunity for a son to be born. And if that woman had a son, he would take on the name of the deceased husband and thus redeem or buy back the legacy of the deceased person. And so his name would continue. For a man's name to continue, for the family name to continue on, again, was a big, big deal in this sort of ancient Near Eastern world of, of where people lived in clans and tribes. So that's the backdrop of our story today, this whole kinsman-redeemer concept. And as we jump in, let me just do a quick review. If you've been here with us, I'll kind of walk you through this story. If you've missed a couple weeks because the weather's been too nice to be in church, then we're gracious here, and this review is for you. Elimelech, I'm going to make it quick, though. Elimelech uh, lives in Israel with his family, and he's facing a famine, and so he leaves uh, the nation of Israel, and he heads to Moab, a neighboring country, and there while in Moab, his sons marry Moabite girls, and the Moabites were not loved by the Israelites. While he's there, he dies, and then his boys die. And so Naomi, left on her own, just her and her two daughters-in-law, are now in Moab, and they hear that things are starting to turn around in Israel, so they head back. They head back together for Bethlehem. But about halfway there, one of the daughters decides that she's not up for the journey, and she turns back. But the other daughter, Ruth, a name, by the way, I don't think we've covered yet, means faithful friend. Ruth, this faithful friend, she says, I'm with you, Naomi. I'm, I'm sticking with you. I'm going back to your land to be with your people and to serve your God. And they arrive back in Israel in Bethlehem with nothing. And the story tells us that Naomi is, is bitter and empty and devastated and without hope. But as they arrive in Bethlehem and as Act 1 closes, we learn that it's the season for the barley harvest. It's the season where hope is renewed and restored in the nation. And so then Ruth, upon Naomi's instruction, goes out into the harvest fields to glean, to pick up the scraps left behind by the harvesters. But it just so happens that Ruth ends up in a field of a righteous man, a man of high character, a man named Boaz. And Boaz not only treats Ruth and Naomi with generosity, we also discover that he is a near kinsman to the family, someone who might be able to be a redeemer. And so this whole situation sparks hope and excitement in Naomi's heart, and she concocts a plan. When the harvest is complete and the men are all down at the threshing floor celebrating and partying and winnowing their wheat, um, I was just talking to, to to Roy Riken today, and he said they have these kind of parties at the harvest on their farm, but a little more tame, right, Roy? A little more, just a tad tamer at your place, I hope. Anyway, Ruth goes down to the threshing floor where it was not a tame party, and she makes a surprise appearance. And she takes this huge risk, and she appro approaches Boaz in the middle of the night, and then she proposes to him. 
And Boaz is at first shocked, but he sees that this is a woman of courage and character and bold faith. And so he responds by saying, yes, I will do it. I will, re- re- I will redeem. I would love to marry you. But first, I have to look into something because there is another redeemer, another kinsman who is more closely related than I. And he actually has first rights of, ref- of refusal. And so he says, you know, in the morning... You know, I go home and wait. I will go and handle the situation. And so Ruth goes home to her mother-in-law and says, here's what went down, here's how it went. He seemed receptive, but there's this other guy. And so Naomi says the same. She says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For this man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And then we talked about last week how God sometimes asks us to wait, to just sit and do nothing, and to put our faith and hope and trust in him. And we talked about how sometimes waiting is harder than doing. And that's how our story closed last week. That's how Act 3 of Ruth ended, with these two women patiently, faithfully, courageously waiting on Boaz, waiting on the Lord to do what the Lord does. And this week, we pick up the story in Act 4, and Act 4 begins, the curtains open, with this word, meanwhile. In other words, as the women are waiting, while the women are busy waiting and trusting and putting their faith in God, Boaz is at work doing what God has called him to do, and that's where our story begins this morning. Ruth, Act 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, First question, is Naomi selling this land? No, he's, he's speaking figuratively here because women in the ancient world were not allowed to own property, and so she's not technically selling the land. What probably happened is when Elimelech left for Moab, he sold his land, probably because it was a famine for pennies on the dollar, but he sold his land to someone else. But now, with Elimelech dead, with the boys passed away, with Naomi returned, the land can be redeemed. The land is eligible to be bought back by a family member. And so that's what Boaz is talking about here. He's pointing out that this land is now up for redemption. And this guy is a possible redeemer. And this is what he says. He says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me. So I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. In other words, if you want the land, it's yours. You have the first rights of refusal on this property. But if you don't want it, I'll take it. Because I have the second rights. I am next in line. And then the near kinsman, this other guy, this closer relative, responds. I will redeem it. And this is the moment in the story when your stomach kind of drops. This is not good news. This is a major bummer because 
We know the kind of man that Boaz is. We know that he has treated Ruth and Naomi well. We know um, that when this guy says, I will redeem it, when Boaz says that, he will do the right thing. And so at this point in the story, when this other nearer kinsman says, I will redeem it, the whole, like the crowd in the playhouse would just sort of sigh and say, oh, this is not how we want the story to go. This is not who we want the girl to end up with, right? This is a major letdown. This is like when Scar becomes the leader of the pride in The Lion King. (laughs) This is like when Jafar is set to marry Jasmine in Aladdin. This is bad news. This is a bad plan. But the letdown does does not last long because Boaz... He's one sharp dude, and he has a plan. He's got a strategy. He's got like one card left to play. Then Boaz said, verse 5, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. He's talking about that, that responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to redeem the dead. That's why we talked about that earlier. In other words, if you want the land, bub, you get the girl too. You can't ignore, you can't get one without the other. It's the whole kit and caboodle. They go together. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This is... This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. It's a real formal deal there. A lot of paperwork. Um, We're going to come back to that in a minute. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Melon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Melon's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Today you are witnesses. Today you are witnessing an amazing act. Today you are witnessing something great. By the way, did anyone see the last second buzzer beater shot that LeBron James put in last night? I mean, like, we are witnesses, right? I couldn't, I couldn't resist that. As I was reading this, as I was doing this last night, like, LeBron's hitting game winners, and you know the whole, like, we are witnesses thing? Anyone from Cleveland here follow basketball? Am I it? Okay, it doesn't fit at all. It's a stupid il- illustration. Here's what I want you to notice about this exchange from the Bible that has nothing to do with the NBA. <laughs> exactly. Minor association. Um, who is the guy who is this nearest kinsman who has the first rights of refusal? Do you notice what his name is in this passage? You know how we talked about names are a really important thing? All throughout the story of Ruth, names have such a big and significant uh, role to play. They really tell the story. What's the name of this nearest kinsman? We don't get a name from him. The author never tells us. And friends... This is very intentional writing. You have to remember that Bethlehem is not a big place. This is a very small town. Everyone knows 
everyone. Plus, he and Boaz, the two guys having this interchange, they are related to one another. But in verse 1, Boaz never says his name. He simply says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Come over here, my friend, and sit down. The words translated, my friend, literally mean one who I do not name. The one whose name is concealed. A great English translation for this might be, let me introduce you to Mr. So-and-so or Mr. Such-and-such or John Doe. This, friends, is someone the author does not even want to name. He is not even worth mentioning. No one knows who he is. No one cares who he is. No one remembers who he is. And the reason for that, friends, is his life is utterly forgettable. His life is not even worth mentioning. This man's life is an utter disgrace. You know the whole sandal deal? I told you we'd come back to the whole sandal thing. What's happening with this whole sandal exchange is they're actually living out, they're kind of living into a, a law in the scriptures that talks about how to conduct a business, how to kind of um, work out these arrangements when a man died and left a woman widowed. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Listen to these words. This is the law of God. This, this is the law of the people. This is the law they were sort of living into and playing out in this scene. It says, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate. Now, she's not there, but he's there on her behalf. And say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his small town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. They knew how to talk some serious trash in ancient Israel. The family of the unsandaled. Ooh, right? Have you ever been called unsandaled? Have you ever called someone else unsandaled? In our culture, we have different words. But let's just say this, for church's sake. <laughs> this is as harsh a public statement of this man's character as you could have possibly made. Oh, you won't, by the way, it's done at the city gate, which is where all the official business of the city was. It's done in front of 10 elders, which means this is extremely formal, extremely um, important. Most official business only required two or three elders, but when you gathered 10 elders, the message was, this is a huge moment. And the message here, as this man removes his sandal, is, oh, you won't redeem you won't redeem this land. You're the guy who won't redeem this woman. You're the guy who won't redeem this family. You unsandaled bleepity bleep. <sighs> That's what's going on here. That's the message. This guy is one unsandaled son of a gun. 
And listen to his reasoning. Here's the reasoning why he won't redeem, why he won't step in and do what God's law is clearly telling him to do. Here's what he says. He says, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I cannot do what God is asking me to do because I might endanger my own estate. And I want us to let those words sink in on our minds and hearts for a little bit this morning. Because they tell us something. They tell us something of who this guy is. They tell us something of what this guy cares about. What his highest priorities in life are. And that's his stuff. His things. His reputation. His prosperity. This guy cares more about his worldly comfort and security than he cares about what's doing right in the eyes of God. He is so focused on the preservation of his little precious estate that he refuses to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And friends, I hope you can see here that the author in this story is reaching through the time-space continuum all the way to Cedar Mill, Oregon in 2018, and he's challenging the very heart of our worldview, of the worldview every single one of us is tempted to embrace. See, the worldview of this guy is the worldview our world wants you to adopt. Mr. Such-and-such, Mr. So-and-so, he thinks like a 21st century middle-class American. And here's what the story is saying. The story is saying very clearly to them and to you and me, a life that chooses comfort Self-preservation and security over a life of redemption is a disgraceful and utterly forgettable life. And the question that rises so boldly out of this story, out of this section in particular, is what about your life? What's your life about? Is your life about redemption or comfort? Is your life about sacrifice for the things of God or security found in the things of this world? Are you like Boaz or are you like Mr. Unsandled, spit in your face, so and so? You see, here is the decision making grid of Mr. No Name. This is how Mr. No Name makes decisions for his life, day in and day out. He asks himself when faced with a a decision, a challenge, an opportunity, he asks himself, is this pleasing to me? Is this profitable for me? Will this decision cost me something? And friends, I get it. I promise you, I get it. I am not preaching up here today as some self-righteous, got-it-all-together pastor. I just have to confess to you right now, I am a lot like Mr. So-and-so. I love comfort. I love pleasure. I love it when things in my life are easy and fun and just the way I want them to be. I promise you, I really do. 
I watch the same TV commercials that you watch where there are people on the beach or in the mountains or at cool concerts or hanging out with friends at amazing restaurants and Coronas are getting their limes and I am tempted just like you are to try and orchestrate my life to be one pleasing, pleasurable, comfortable moment, one right after another. I'm just so tempted to even look at my summer plans and go, how do I cram as much pleasure and fun and self-gratification into that ever-shrinking two-month, thank you, Beaverton School District, period, (laughs) as I possibly can. I am tempted, just like you are, to make my life all about safety and security and ease and pleasure. But friends... The message of the scriptures, the message of this story is, do not fall for that lie. Do not get lured into that trap, because this passage and the entire Bible really tells us this. If your time and energy and focus is spent simply on building your own little kingdom, your own estate, your own life of safety and security and ease, you will not only settle for an astoundingly forgettable existence, you will miss out on the rich, deep, satisfying life of redemption that God is inviting you into and calling you as one of his children to live. And the message of this story is don't miss that. Don't sacrifice that just to be a Mr. Such-and-Such or a Mrs. So-and-So. And here's where I really need to pause and say, warning, warning to all of us church people, because I want to be transparent about what God is calling us to. You know, a life of redemption, when we talk about it in church, when we preach about it, I always say it's a lot easier to preach the gospel than live the gospel. Preaching is easy compared to living. But a life of redemption, when we talk about it in church, it sounds so good. It sounds so great. Helping the homeless, yeah. Making a difference, ministering to the marginalized, you know, helping hurting kids, generously laying down our lives for the other. It sounds so good and it sounds so right and so noble and valiant and we can hear the Rocky Balboa music starting to build in the background as we climb the stairs and lift our hands. Yeah, we're going to do great things for God. But here's the truth. When the sermon is over and the background music stops, if you choose a life of redemption, a life that partners with God to set things in this world back to the way he intends them to be, there will be a cost. Every single time there will be a cost and there will be risk and there will be sacrifice and you will be intentionally stepping into a place where you will feel discomfort and you will have questions and there will be uncertainty and fear and insecurity and all the rest. Friends, a life of redemption will actually require you to have more faith and trust in God than you have ever had in your life before. But that is who we are. That is who we as a church community are here to unashamedly and boldly call each other into. A life of redemption. A life that says, I will embrace the sacrifice and the uncertainty and the doubt and the cost 
because I know who my God is and I know it's worth it. Friends, that is who we are as a church. That is why we exist, to call each other into that place. And that's why Pastor John invites you to join his ministry where we visit widows and shut-ins, the forgotten people of our world whose lives just need every now and then a redemptive touch, just someone to sit and listen to them for an hour a week to say, you matter. We still see you. You still have value to us. That's why we ask you unapologetically to give to missionaries and projects in Guatemala. That's why we're inviting you this year again to be a part of Park It, where we're taking the fun and good news of KidFest to kids and families in parks and schools and neighborhoods all over the area. Because it's, it's, it has redemptive power and it will make an eternal difference. That's why we host Jesus' table to feed those who need a meal or maybe just a place to connect with someone who cares. It's why we have Celebrate Recovery and Cedar Mill Refuge and Prison Fellowship. That's why we ask you to serve and invest in our youth, to pour your lives into a young person who may someday be a leader for Jesus Christ. You see, I'm not just talking about checking a volunteer box getting something off your conscience or off your list. I'm talking about your life invested into the lives of another. I'm talking about your life engaged in ministry, kingdom advancing, hate and evil and injustice pushing back stuff. That's what we're called to. It's why we constantly and consistently and over and over again ask you to give one week of your time at Royal Family Kids Camp. A week where you can be a part of loving on kids whose lives have been filled with rejection and disappointment and uncertainty and neglect and abuse. Side note, we need 20 more people this year. We are 20 people short, 12 full-time staff and 8 more part-timers to have a full camp this year. Right now we can take 40 kids we have the capacity at camp to take 63 kids. As it currently stands, 23 foster kids will not be able to go to camp because we do not have enough people who have said, I will give one week of my summer, one week of my life to serve and sacrifice and love on some kids who normally don't get love. And friends, maybe I'm asking too much for our church. Maybe I'm asking too much for us to commit to 100 people because that's what it takes, 100 people. We have about 1,000 people here on Sunday morning between the two services. That's 10%. Maybe it's just too much to think that 10% of our people would give one week of their summer, especially over 4th of July. But I hope it's not. I hope it's not too much to ask. And I wonder, friends, I wonder if we aren't getting there because too many of us have said in our minds and hearts, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. I cannot go because it would take too much of my vacation time. I cannot make it because 4th of July has become this sacred week in our minds and hearts. I cannot redeem it because it would be hard or difficult or interrupt my life of pleasure. I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. Friends, what is your estate these days? What is that thing that you're holding so tightly to? What is that thing that's preventing you from stepping out, not just in Royal Family Kids Camp, but in anywhere, stepping out into what God is calling you to, a life of redemption and sacrifice and love and joy and mercy? What is, what is your estate in this world? 
What is it that you've pinned your hope to? What is it that's getting your real time and energy and creativity and thinking and resources? Because we've all gotten a state or two, and I cannot redeem it. I cannot do what God's asking me to because it might compromise my estate, that thing that really matters to me. And friends, I'm not trying to guilt anybody. Because it's not a guilt thing. Don't go to royal family kids camp because of guilt. Don't serve our kids because of guilt. But I do want us to ask this question. As people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ in this world, we must ask this question. Are we settling for lives of comfort, self-preservation, and security over lives of redemption? Verse 11, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. They saw something even greater than the LeBron James buzzer beater. I'm bringing it back, trying for a second time. May the Lord make the woman who is, co- who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Ephrath is, is kind of like the area of Bethlehem. This would be like saying, may you have standing in Washington County and be famous in Cedar Mill, right? So like, may your fame kind of stretch even beyond our small town into the entire region. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And here in this section, the elders have, have recognized that they have seen something great. They have seen sacrificial you know, love that can change the world. They're saying, Boaz, you are getting it right. Your life is actually about the right stuff. You are giving yourself to redemptive things. You're nothing like Mr. Such and Such. You will be remembered. And the way they express that is by referencing all these names from Israel's past history. They talk about Rachel and Leah and Tamar and Perez. And maybe you're tempted to think, man, yeah, like the heroes of the faith. These great Bible characters. But then... If you take a look for a little longer, you go back and you read the stories of these people only to find out that they got some weird stories. This is a weird list of folks. They've got some sordid pasts. They do not have very clean-cut histories, each of them. In fact, each of them has some, some very significant struggles to overcome. Rachel was a woman who was childless for decade after decade of her life in a culture that condemned childless, that said, childlessness, that said if you could not have a child as a woman, you were worth nothing, and she carried that weight. She carried that weight her whole life until eventually she tried to use her maidservant to sleep with her husband so that the maidservant might bear them a child. Leah was, I don't you know if you remember this, but she was the, the unattractive daughter, the unattractive sister, the unloved wife who was forever dealing with self-esteem issues, remember? Her husband actually wanted her sister more than he wanted her. He only married her out of obligation to get to her sister. That's her story. Then you have Tamar. Tamar, this is maybe the worst of the bunch. Tamar was an outsider who had been treated so terribly by her father-in-law that she posed as a temple prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law and get impregnated by him. That's how her story goes. And if you read that story in Genesis 38, you'll be tempted to start chanting, Jerry, Jerry. Is that reference too old? No, because it really reads like that. You're like, is this stuff in the scriptures? And then there's Perez. Perez was a twin. Any twins out there? Right? Talk about sibling rivalry. 
in the ancient world, it was a big deal to be born first. All the rights and privileges went to the firstborn. And so you wanted to be born first. And like in the womb, Perez was in line to be born second. In fact, his brother started to come out first. His arm got out. Now, you know, this might be a lot for you in church, but picture this. His brother's arm comes out. The... Uh, the, uh, the, the maidservant, the midwife who's delivering the baby boys, ties a scarlet thread around brother's wrist. His arm goes back in, but then suddenly Perez finds a way, even as like an unborn child, to, to get out first, to like rifle the firstborn status away from his brother. And he slips in there and he comes out first. And that's why he's called Perez, because it's a name that means to shoot the gap. Or breached the line. He, t- he saw this opportunity and, and he dove right in and he got on out first, right? So this list of characters is, is sort of like, may your life be like Leah and Rachel and Tamar and Perez. And I think if I was Boaz, I'd be like, uh, you know, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't, that's not the prayer I'm looking for, right? But here's what they're saying. Here's what's being hoped for by the elders here. They're bringing all these names up because... Even though this relationship that Bo has, has with Ruth, this whole story of, of, of their relationship, even though it's a little unorthodox, even though it's a little strange, even though it's not the norm, even though it's a Moabite girl who comes home with her bitter mother-in-law, begs in the fields and visits a threshing floor late at night and then finds love and then has to sidestep this nearer kinsman and eventually marries this prominent man of Bethlehem, even though this whole thing seems more than just a bit strange, here's what the elders are praying. Here's what they're saying. They know that God has a habit of using the strange for his glory. That God just time and time again says, it may not be normal, but I can use it anyway. Friends, let me tell you this. If you decide to enter into a redemptive life, if you step into a redemptive life, it won't be an ordinary life. It's not going to be a boring life. It's not going to just be your standard plug-and-play, American dream, middle-class, Cedar Mill, Oregon life. And I tell you that because you need to know, if your, st- if your life starts to look a little strange, if your life starts to feel a little weird, a little unorthodox, outside the lines of what society wants to tell you success in this world is, then you might just be on the right track. Here's the problem with most of us middle-class American Christians. We want to follow Jesus, but we don't want to be weird. We want to follow Jesus, but we want to be just like everyone else. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you won't be just like everyone else. You're going to look different. Your life's going to be a little strange. You are going to be a bit weird. And we resist that sometimes. Or, or we do the opposite. The other kind of side of the coin is we, em- we embrace this idea of being weird We kind of latch on to this idea that if I'm a Christian, I should be weird. And then we get weird in all the wrong ways. We like purposefully act weird and do weird things and say weird stuff. And then we try and like put a spiritual label on it. And God's going, no, 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 that's not the kind of weird I'm looking for. Friends, in this story, when we're called to not be normal, to be a little weird, the story is saying, be weird in the way of redemption. 
Be weird in the way of pouring out your life for the kingdom of God. Be weird in the way of loving and giving and serving so sacrificially that the world says that makes no sense to us at all. So Boaz took Ruth, this is verse 13, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. I made some sex jokes in the first service that did not go over well, like total lead balloon, complete silence, like most of the old people in the room like didn't know what to do. So I'm not even going to go there this time. I'm just going to ask you this question. What is so amazing about this verse? Do you see what's so amazing about this verse? Do you see the miracle in this verse? I hope you do. Some of you don't. I'll tell you what it is. Because in the first, the, 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 the ancient readers of this story, the readers from this culture, they would have known exactly what was happening. To understand what's happening, we got to go back to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 3, this is the very beginning of the story. The very beginning of the story, now Elimelech, it says, this is chapter, verse 3, Naomi's husband died there in Moab, and he died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, 10, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So these two girls are married for 10 years, and after 10 years, neither of them have what? Any children. See, this is not just the story of a young Moabite girl. This is the, young, this is the story of a young barren Moabite. For all practical purposes, the ancient world would have said and considered her to be barren, unable to conceive children. And some people asked me between services, well, yeah, but couldn't it have been the husband? And I said, yeah, do you know when we started realizing that when a woman couldn't have children that it might be the husband's problem? Do you know when we started to maybe even think that way? It was like the 1950s, long before this story, right? At this point in human history, if you couldn't have kids, whose fault was it? It was the woman's fault, right? And that's what everyone would have thought. But now this barren Moabite woman is pregnant. Very good. She's prego. Yeah, she's going to have a kid. That would have been amazing. It was a miracle, friends. And I just have to make this, this very subtle point. I wish I could spend more time on it. But I do want to tell you this. A life of redemption is a life where you will encounter the power and miracles of God. So many of us wonder, does God do miracles anymore? I don't see God's power in my life. Well, let me ask you this. Are you living the redemption life? Because that's when God shows up. Those are the places where he does his best work. When you step into that life, into those places, into that world, that's when the miracles and the power of God will begin to rock you. If you step into a redemption life, you will, I promise you, encounter the power and miracles of God because he does what only he can do. The women said to Naomi, praise be the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. You see, this story concludes with the women of this town who only months earlier heard Naomi say, I am bitter, I am empty, I have no hope, and I have no sons. 
Now those same women say to Naomi, your daughter-in-law loves you and is better to you than seven sons. And in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, seven sons, friends, was the symbol of supreme blessing. It could not get any better than seven sons. Seven sons was as good as it gets. And yet in this story, it has gotten even better. God has taken one Moabite daughter-in-law and made her a greater blessing than even seven sons. A life of redemption is a life that will lead to deep, rich, soul-satisfying blessing. The blessings that this world offers, they're fleeting, they come and go, They're thin, they have no substance, and yet God says, if you follow me, if you will live a redemption life, if you will walk in my ways, there will be something so deep, so rich, so pure, so soul-satisfying for you along the way and in the end that you won't know what hit you. You see, God says, I can give you what this world can never give you. I don't care how many Coronas you drink on how many beaches. I don't care how many vacations you take, friends. Nothing will satisfy your soul like the long, hard road of a redemption life, a life that is about God's will and ways in this world. Because there is deep, rich blessing for your heart and mind and soul and life on that road. Blessing that you can't find anywhere else. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to be reminded of that today because maybe you're on that road and it's hard and it's difficult and there's struggle and you're looking at people on the other road and they seem so happy and the commercials make them look so so joy-filled and on Facebook their lives are so utterly perfect and wonderful. And I know you think this way. Stay off Facebook. I'm telling you, Facebook's all right. But man, life comparison like my, my real life to your highlight life is not, it never works. Um, just makes you feel crummy and it makes you question the life of redemption that you are called to live. Maybe you're on that road and you're starting to feel weary. You're starting to have doubts or fears or concerns or questions and you're wondering, will it ever pay off? And friends, I'm here to tell you and Ruth is here to tell you, yes, it will. You see, someday you're gonna get to the end of your life And there's going to be a funeral. And for some of you, I'll probably do your funeral. And there's going to be stories shared. And I hope that the best stories aren't just of this vacation and that vacation and this fun time and that fun time and these nice things and this perfect little, you know, middle-class life that we lived. I hope and pray that it goes a lot farther than that. I hope and pray that it goes a lot deeper than that because there's so much more for us than that. Maybe today you're living the life of a Mr. Such-and-Such or a Mrs. So-and-So and you're just... You just need a nudge. You're looking at their redemption life and you're thinking, maybe, maybe I should take a leap. Maybe I should take a step. Maybe I should start to walk down that path and maybe you just need a little nudge. I'm here this morning to just nudge you, push you, shove you, coax you, pull you, challenge you, help you, do whatever it takes to step into the life that you were created to live. A life that will make a difference and that will matter so much more than the cheap imitation this world wants to offer you. Do not get sucked into that lie. Do not get sucked into that lie. No matter where you are, friends, God wants to give you a nudge. 
He wants to encourage you to step into the life of redemption he has called you to. And he always does that, friends, by reminding us that a life of redemption starts with this truth. We are people who've been redeemed. We're called to live lives that redeem because we are a people who have been redeemed. People who have been set free by the price of death. People who have been made right again through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You see, this is not a God who calls us to walk a road that he has not walked before. Our Lord became a near kinsman, took on flesh and blood that he might step into our world, that he might walk the road of redeeming my life and your life, no matter the cost. And he paid the ultimate price, the price of his own life, the price of death, even death on a cross, so that redemption might be offered to me and you. Not just salvation, not just a place in heaven someday, but lives of meaning and purpose, lives that can partner with God in his redemption story. And so this morning, friends, whether you're in the middle of a redemption life or you're walking a redemption road that's hard or you're just looking at one and you're considering making a step, come to the table and remember where we find our courage. Remember where we find our hope and our strength. And it's at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in the bread and it's in the cup. It's in his body that was broken for me and you. It's in his blood that was shed. It's in the redemption that we were given because God paid the price on our behalf. So let me ask you again, what kind of life are you living? What kind of life are you called to? Where is God calling you to live beyond simply being a Mr. Such and Such or a Mrs. So and So? Where is he calling you to step into or continue to walk in the life of redemption he offers. Bring that question to the table this morning. I'm gonna pray and then the tables will be open. Come, receive the elements, take them back to your seats, take them on your own and we'll declare together that we are a redeemed people who live for something so much more than this world, amen? This morning, Father, we give you praise and thanks for this little story that has so much power to it. Thank you for the fact that even though we settle so much for just the things of this world, that you continue to call us, you continue to beckon us, you continue to give us opportunities to live for you and to walk with you and to experience the life that you've given. So Lord, today, I pray for those who are struggling on that road, that they would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened. I pray for some in this room who are standing on the edge maybe standing on the doorstep of a redemption life journey that you are calling them into. And I pray today, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you will give them courage and boldness and faith to begin to walk down that path and to take just one step into the life that you give. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. We pray it all in your name.